like to turn you to that passage we read from the book of Jonah. And uh, I want to read uh, from verse 5 through to verse 12 again. Uh, So Jonah, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 to 12. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Well, we all know a thing or two about storms. Uh, Nobody lives very long in this world without finding themselves in trouble of some description. And uh, certainly, the last two years, we've all lived through a tremendous storm as COVID has blown uh, through and lingered over our lives. And I don't know about you, but one of the questions that raised for me is, well, what is God doing? Whether it's the personal storms that come, uh, whether it's the great storm of COVID itself, uh, what is God doing? Why has he allowed this? I suppose you could answer that question at a lot of different levels, and there'd be a lot of levels we just can't answer it at. You know, how can we know exactly what God is doing? But I think there's one obvious thing Uh, which you find in this passage, you find it in a number of other places. Uh, One big thing God is seeking to do through the storms of life, and that is that he's seeking to awaken us, and to awaken us spiritually. He's seeking to stir us out of the uh, ordinariness of our everyday lives. He's seeking to, to wake us up, to think about him, to think about how we relate to him, to think about the direction of our lives, to think about the end of our lives, and to really set ourselves seeking him. Now, you can see it here. Uh, Jonah is uh, a prophet of the Lord. He's been given a specific task to go to Nineveh. Uh, It's a big task. He doesn't want to go. And so we find Jonah is heading in the opposite direction. He's on the run from God. And uh, he heads into this ship that's going to Tarshish. 
Uh, so Nineveh is in the east, Tarshish is in the west. So he's going the opposite direction. And uh, so exhausted, I guess, from uh, all that's been happening to him, uh, he heads into the depths of the ship and he falls into a deep, deep sleep. And maybe he thinks that's the end of it. Sleep away the journey and uh, hopefully we'll be a lot nearer Tarshish and a lot further from Nineveh by the time I wake up. But uh, we see that God is not willing to, to just leave it like that. And it's a very good thing that God is not willing to leave it like that. And so we find that God comes after him. And he comes after him with a great storm. Uh, he hurls, that was the word in the ESV, he hurls uh, a great storm, a great wind at this ship. And uh, this ship and its sailors, they find themselves in a storm unlike any other they've ever experienced. And as uh, the sailors panic about the storm, what we find in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that Jonah experiences a great awakening. Not just from his sleep uh, in the bottom of the ship, but from his spiritual sleep. Uh, and so the story, really, of Jonah is the story of a man who, who moves from this position of, uh, of being spiritually asleep uh, to the point where he's wide awake and he's seeing clearly what's really going on and he's seeing clearly his own circumstances in life and he sees clearly what he has to do. Now what I want to do today, and I'm going to start this morning and I'm going to finish it tonight, is I want to follow Jonah on that journey because I think it's a journey that we all need to make. Uh, we need to make it for the ourselves the first time, if you like. But, you know, uh, we can get very sleepy as Christians. So, so we need to make it to awaken us uh, to come to Christ and become a Christian. But we also need it, once we are Christians, to, to continually uh, be able to wake ourselves up uh, to spiritual reality. So... Um, I'll pose the question now and start to answer it this morning and finish answering it this evening. And the question we'll pose is, well, what does that look like? What does it mean uh, to be spiritually awake? Uh, what's the journey? Uh, what's the process? Now, of course, it may happen in an instant. Uh, it may take many, many years um, so I'm not here imposing any time, kind of time scale, but it's helpful, I think, to, to see the stages that Jonah goes through. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll start to see ourselves in those stages. And I ain't been praying that that will be helpful for us. And that by the grace of God, uh, he would use that uh, to, uh, to strengthen us and to open our eyes and to move us further on in the journey of life. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Where's the journey here? What's it look like uh, to be awakened? Well, firstly, let's just take a quick look at the starting point, uh, where Jonah begins here. Uh, he is on the run from God. We've already talked about that. Uh, he's in his own little world, really. Um, his own virtual reality. 
don't know, kids, if you've got a virtual reality headset. I don't know, dads, adults, if you've got a virtual reality headset, seems to be a man thing. Um, but, but a headset you put on and it just immerses you into a game. So you're not just looking at a screen, it's right in your eyes and you can't see or really be aware of anything else. Uh, a virtual reality. Well, that's where Jonah is. Uh, he, he thinks he can run from God. Now, how mad is that? Uh, how out of touch of reality is that? You know, later on, he talks about God in verse 9, and he calls him the God of heaven uh, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, so you think, well, well, Jonah, where is it you imagine you're going to go? Uh, what area are you going to find that's going to keep you uh, out of the reach of God? So he's, he's on the run, he's in his own little world, and uh, we've already mentioned too, he's, he's fast asleep in the storm. Uh, so the storm is going on, but it's not having any effect on Jonah. Uh, he's oblivious to it all. And uh, I think he's, a, he's a, a tremendous picture, really, of where we all start. Uh, maybe some of us are on the run from God, and we've been on the run for a long time. Maybe others uh, just live in our own little worlds, you know, in denial about really life and the big issues of life. We can't face them, so we just pull in our horns and we, we immerse ourselves in the TV or in whatever it is that gives us a little bit of relief, and we lost touch uh, with, with reality. Uh, or maybe we are uh, fast asleep, no real concern about God, no real awareness of God. Maybe coming to church, yes, but, but uh, your heart's not really in this. You're physically here, mentally maybe you're here, but, but this isn't the burning big thing in your life. This isn't about life and death to you. It's just church. Well, there's the starting point. Maybe, maybe we're there somewhere today. Okay, secondly, uh, let's move on and, and see here that there needs to be some kind of initial awakening. Now, the, the vision of God we've got in the Bible is, is not of some big sort of deity that's a trillion miles away doing his own thing, uh, but it is of is a God who is, well, he fills heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him, but he's also hands-on. He's the God who is in your life. Uh, he's the God who is active in your life. He's the God who, is, who strives with us, who, who works with us, who's governing our lives, whose providence is giving us good things, whose wisdom is sometimes bringing us through storms and, and hard times. And he's working in order to stir us. Now, what are some of the ways whereby God would stir us? Well, maybe. Uh, the first verse tells you that. How did God first uh, get Jonah's attention? Well, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And there's the great way, the main way, the big way, the clearest way that God seeks to stir us. God seeks to move us through his word, through the Bible. Uh, so you come to church and we, we have preachers in church. Why do we have preachers in church? Well, because that's how God speaks. 
as the Bible is opened up, as its truths are held up and, and, and explained, and then the implications of them are set out, and, and somebody exhorts us to really think about it and to engage with this. Uh, that's God's great way of, of getting our attention, of shaking us. But it's not the only way. I mean, here, uh, Jonah's managing to ignore the word of the Lord and just full-on disobeying it. We're all quite capable of that. And, and so, you know, God's not at a loss what to do next. Next strategy is to pursue him with a storm. Now, you see the significance of that. You know, I think it's legitimate to say that the storms of life, even the great storm of COVID, has been sent uh, to stir us, to awaken us. And so uh, there has been a tremendous shaking from God that's gone on in our nation, in our lives, over the last two years. I'm wondering what difference it's made. You know, initially we were all so shocked, weren't we? All so shaken, cowering in our homes, frightened of what this might be and what this might do. But, you know, human beings, we're tremendously resilient. And uh, we can sleep through anything. And we can get back to sleep if only we were that resilient in normal sleep. Uh, but it's spiritual sleep. We can, we can get back to sleep so easily. Don't need to count the sheep. We don't need the eye mask. We don't need the lavender. Easily, natural to us to, to slip back into uh, uh, our, our coma. Well, God has been shaking us. I wonder what it's done. I wonder how uh, alert you are now to your own mortality. Well, God's shaking us through the storms of life. Uh, another way that God will shake us, uh, and, and, and this, at this point I'm thinking about something that's not really in the text. Mm, you could maybe get it out somewhere, but it's certainly a biblical idea. And that's the, the reality of a conscience. Now, you and I, we've got a strong sense of right and wrong, at least when we think we're in the right. And we've got a, a razor-sharp sense of injustice, especially when we feel we've been wronged. Now, that's a God-given thing. A sense of right and wrong, a morality. It's part of being made in the image of God. And uh, along with that, there comes a conscience, which is something within us. It belongs to us. It's part of our humanity. And if we do the right thing, we feel good about it. That's the conscience affirming us we do the wrong thing we feel bad about it that's the conscience accusing us and God has put if you like a, a sort of little mini smoke alarm in our very beings in our very souls and so uh, you should never ignore it you know if you hear a smoke alarm it's not safe to turn over and go back to sleep is it you better get down there and check the kitchen's not on fire well, it's the same spiritually. If you have a bad conscience, don't smother it. Uh, don't just push it away. Don't just uh, drink it away. That's what plenty of people do. Don't just play it away, shop it away, uh, watch TV it away, get out a box set and look. That's what plenty of us do. Don't medicate a guilty conscience. No, it's a smoke alarm. It's God seeking to stir us. Another thing that God can do to, to begin to wake us up is he can... Well, he can, he can do it through some very unexpected people. I mean, you see it here with Jonah. Here he is in the bottom of the ship. He's fast asleep. 
How does it begin? How does he start waking up? Well, he's not listening to the word of the Lord. He's not listening to the storm. He's certainly not bothered about his conscience. In verse 6, though, the captain of the ship goes down and just won't let him rest. The captain of the ship goes down and he tells him to get up. And look what he says in verse 6. How can you sleep? He rebukes him. He says, get up and call on your God. <laughs> you see, this is a pagan man. He's not a believer in the Lord. You know, we wouldn't welcome him into church membership until he'd been converted. And yet, this man, who's a pagan, is rebuking the prophet of the Lord because he's not praying in the midst of this storm. It's a, it's a remarkable thing, don't you think? And God can use some unexpected people. He can use unbelieving people to, to, to wake us up and to, to stir us. You know, and as the story goes on, you find that the sailors, the other people on the ship, they, they play a massive part in the awakening of Jonah spiritually. See, God can use all sorts of things. And what I'm trying to point out here is that he's active in your life. Don't explain these things away and just say, well, that's the way the world is, or that's just the way we've evolved, or uh, that's just, uh, uh, um, you know, too much cheese late at night, or whatever it is. It's just a psychological thing. Don't, don't, that's what the world does, isn't it? That's what the secular world does. Explains everything away. But we know better than that, don't we? We believe in a God who's big and present and active and striving in our lives, who's a real person, who's right here today, speaking into our minds, speaking into our lives, speaking into our hearts, and not always in affirmation, sometimes turning up the volume that we might waken to him. Okay, there's, there's more we could say on this. We could talk about how other Christians can be a big help to us. You know, Jonah... Uh, eventually does go to Nineveh and God uses him to awaken the people of Nineveh. So God can use the Christians in our lives to stir us and, and move us. But, but, but all of that, all of that was my second point, to say that there's, there's got to be an initial thing that gets us moving, something that stirs it, maybe an illness, maybe a tragedy, maybe a fear, uh, maybe COVID, maybe a sermon, maybe a Bible verse, on a calendar or outside a church. Maybe some other person who's not a believer themselves who stirred us up and made us think or told us off and uh, told us to pull ourselves together. Or maybe some other Christian who's been praying for us and trying to come alongside us in order to, to help us. And I'm sure that list is not exhaustive. I wonder how long uh, since you were there just prodded, just stirred, just awakened. Just, just the beginning, an initial shaking. And if God just reached in, took you by the shoulders and just said, Ian, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. Well, maybe this is doing that today for someone. So we've, we remember what we're doing here. We're, we're following Jonah on his journey. We're seeing him being awakened to his spiritual need. We're, we're seeing that we need to follow the same journey. So we've, we've thought about the starting point, how we're asleep, we're on the run, we're in a virtual reality. 
then there's an initial shaking. There's a second part where we, we begin to open up and begin to think deeper, begin to think bigger about God and life and eternity. And then there's a third thing. And this third thing, I'm going to call it a being found out. Our forefathers would have called it conviction of sin. Uh, that, that it's beyond really that initial shaking. It, it's, it's as you begin to seek. It can happen in a moment. It could take a decade. Uh, but there's a, after the initial shaking, you, you've begun to seek. You're awake now a little bit. You can see the storm. And, but you begin to really think as you've never thought before. You begin to think about yourself. You begin to think about God. It all becomes real. And, well, what happens then? Well, let's look at the next session, uh, section rather, of, of Jonah chapter 1. So in, um, in verse 5, let's pick it up there. Uh, the storm is raging. We read that the sailors are afraid. And uh, they're all praying to their own gods. And they throw the cargo into the ship to lighten the load. You know, it's panic stations. It's all hands on deck. But, of course, Jonah's not there. Uh, He's down in the ship asleep, and uh, that's when he's caught. He's caught napping. He's caught sleeping. And then it goes on a bit. Um, Verse 7. Verse 7 and 8. There's there's a bit of an inquiry. So the storm is still raging. They've they've, uh, jettisoned the cargo. They still feel in danger. And so uh, what they do is, is they gather together. They say, look, this is not an ordinary situation here. We've taken the most drastic measures we can find. We've thrown the cargo overboard, but still the storm rages. And so their, their beliefs start to kick in. Their pagan beliefs start to kick in. And they, they're starting to say, this is no ordinary storm. Uh, somebody here has done something. The gods are angry with us. The gods are out to get us. And so they, they hold an inquiry. And now what they do is something which I guess they did back then. Uh, they, they're looking at each other saying, right, which one of you is it? And they, they cast lots in order to decide. So drawing straws, you know, different ways of doing it. They cast lots. Now, I don't think that's something we're supposed to do as Christians. That's not a good way to uh, make decisions. Uh, but what happens here is that God overrules so you've got these pagans with their sort of pagan ideas uh, and God comes and he, he overrules those pagan ideas and the lot, we're told, falls on Jonah. So put yourself in Jonah's shoes. That's what we're trying to do. You've been woken up. You, you suddenly find yourself in this massive storm. Everybody's panicking. You're coming out a bit bleary-eyed. You've had a good telling off from the captain. So you come out to see what's going on, and this storm is shocking, and the cargo's going overboard, and you suddenly realize you're in a situation. And then you find yourself suddenly being turned on by these sailors, uh, and they're looking for a cause for all this. They've decided this is not normal, and Jonah's here, and the lot falls on him. Now, what's happening there? Well, they're not wrong, are they? It is because of Jonah. And so what's happening here is Jonah is getting exposed. 
First he's been exposed as being asleep, but now he's being exposed as the, as the cause. And so in verse 8 now, they give him a grilling. So they got their suspect, and so they stick him in the chair, they shine a bright light in his eyes. They didn't really do that, I made that up. Uh, and they, and they want to know, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Suddenly, Jonah feels he's in the spotlights. And he feels now he's being fingered as the victim, or sorry, the, the, the villain in this particular scenario. So they ask him the questions. I suppose the big moment is in verse 10. He tells them who he is in verse 9. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. <laughs> and then in verse 10, the sailors, who were scared enough already, their, their terror levels go off the scale. You know, it's one thing to be dealing with one of the little pagan deities, the God of the mountains, or the God of fertility, or whatever it is, or the God of the storm. But everybody knew about the God of the Hebrews. Everybody knew that he was the one high God. Everybody knew that he was the God who demolished Pharaoh all those centuries before. Everybody knew about the Lord. And if it's the Lord then who's coming for them, boy, they are in big trouble. And so uh, they, they really go for Jonah now. So verse 10, this is the big moment. They say to Jonah, what have you done? Can you see how the net is tightening. They're spiraling in upon him. Uh, he's the one in the wrong. He's the one on the run. He's already been awakened now. He's come out into this storm. And suddenly, the focus is on him. His conduct is being examined. And the question is being asked, what have you done? Then in verse 11, the storm worsens yet again. And they come up with a new question. There in the second half of verse 11, they've established that he's the problem. And now they want to know, Jonah, how are you going to put this right? What have we got to do to you to make the sea calm down for us? You see what's happened here. Jonah is now completely exposed. Two massive questions. We all need to face them. What have you done? And how are you going to put it right? The two great questions of an awakened soul. What have I done with my life? Uh, how have I lived? And how am I going to put it right? How can this be fixed? Uh, how can I have hope again? Uh, how can I be forgiven? How can I escape the storms of judgment? How can I put it right? Now, what I'm coming to is this. At this moment, Jonah is wide awake. Not just physically, but spiritually. Now he can see what he's done. Now he can see what his life has been, what his actions have done. Now he can see the mess that he's made. He can see the storm and he knows he just can't go on like this. That's a key moment, you know, when you realize, I can't go on like this. Something's got to give. He's remembered who he is, or at least who he's meant to be. He said in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, one of the people of God, and I worship the Lord. 
The great I am, the God of the Exodus, the creator God, the sovereign over all that is. He's remembered who he's meant to be. He's remembered who God is. He is the Lord, verse 9. He is the God of heaven. You can't limit him to some geography or some certain people group. He's the God of heaven. And he's the one who made the sea and the lands. He's, he's, he's in full exposure now. He can see who he is. He can see who God is. He can see what he's done. And as a result of that, you get to verse 12. Uh, 12 verse 12 is an astonishing verse. What he does in verse 12 is own his own sin. He says, look at the, the end of verse 12. I know that it is my fault. I know it's my fault. I know it's my fault. I know it's my fault. Now, the journey to spiritual awakeness will go through different routes at different paces, but it will always, always, always take us there where we are owning our own sin. We're not blaming anybody else now. We're not blaming our parents. We're not blaming the government. We're not blaming our employer. We're not blaming our neighbours. We're not blaming our spouse or our family. And we're not blaming God anymore. We're looking at ourselves and we say, yeah, I did this. I did this. I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder how long it is since you've been there as a Christian. Because if you're not there, if you've never been there, then you're still fast asleep. And if you've been there in the past, but you've not been there a long time, then you've fallen back asleep. Because, you know, the closer you get to God, the more you grow as a Christian, the more aware you become of the muck within. And the more urgent it becomes to deal with it, and the bigger the, the whole issue of your sanctification becomes. It's not an easy place to be. But know this. If you are there, then God has worked a miracle in your life. You know, we say, why doesn't God do something? Well, if you're there, I tell you this. God has done a miracle within. He has brought you to an amazing place. He has opened your eyes to the things that are, we desperately need to know and understand. And from this moment, there is great hope. This is a turning point, in other words. And so, what does Jonah do? Let's come to the fourth thing, the fourth step on his journey, the final thing. We talked about the starting point. He's on the run. We talked about the initial shaking, God using the storm, uh, or unexpected people. Uh, then we talked thirdly about this conviction of sin, being found out and having to face uh, the fact that we carry responsibility for our own lives. Now the fourth thing, what does he do next? Well, this is the, the key moment where things start to turn around. This is the moment where he is saved, if you like. What he does is he surrenders to God. He's, he just surrenders. He stops arguing. He stops trying. He stops fighting. He's realized he's the problem. He's realized he cannot fix it. And so he gives himself 
lock, stock and barrel, gives himself to God. I think that's what he's saying in the first half of verse 12. They ask him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And verse 12, he looks them in the eye and he says, you pick me up and you throw me into that sea and it will go calm. Now what is that moment? Well, he's not, that's not about despair. He's not saying, oh, I just end it all. It's not an act of atonement either. He's saying, well, I'll sacrifice myself and pay God back for my own sins. And it's not about escape. So he's not just saying, let's just get away from this whole situation. So what he says in verse 12, it's not suicide. I think that's very, very important. God will never ask you to destroy yourself. Never. Do not hear me say that today that that is somehow what God is asking. God will never ask you to harm yourself. God will never ask you to destroy yourself. Uh, that is always Satan. So any idea, any suggestion that ever comes into your head that you should harm yourself, that you should destroy yourself, understand that that comes from hell itself. And you resist it. And you get whatever help you need because God will never ask that of anyone. So this is not suicide. He's not throwing his life away. What it is is something actually quite remarkable and wonderful. What he's doing here is putting himself in God's hands entirely, totally, and irreversibly. He knows he can't save himself. Uh, he knows that God is his only hope. And hasn't he just said in verse 9 that his God is the God who made the sea? And isn't he then remembering that he's the great creator who made the sea and everything in it? So having just said that, when he says to these men, throw me into the sea, he's not despairing, he's not suicidal. He's saying, put me into God's hands. Put me into God's hands. It's an act of faith. And I believe, I 100% believe that he is expecting a deliverance. So this is not despair. This is not suicide. God will never ask us to do that. Putting yourself into God's hands is never suicide. Uh, it is an act of faith here. He is entrusting himself to the God who made the sea and everything in it. And you know the rest of the story. Uh, verse 17, the Lord had already provided, already provided a huge fish to swallow up Jonah. That's not his destruction. That's his salvation. Now, this really is as far as we can go this morning. Uh, but this is where true awakening takes us in the end. Can I say it again? Not some kind of suicidal thing, but a moment where we are entrusting ourselves into the hands of God with no plan B, in full expectation 
that he will deliver us. I want to talk about more tonight, uh, this more tonight. There's, you see, there's a second part to this awakening. We need to awaken to God's grace. See, Jonah already knows this, which is why it's not very prominent in the first part. But uh, we need to know uh, and be awakened, not just to our sin, uh, but be awakened to God's grace. You will never really be able to entrust ourselves to him unless we're also awakened to his grace. So this evening, I want to think about that second part to a spiritual awakening, awakening to grace. Um, But let me finish this morning with the, the positive note, the same positive note we'll return back to tonight. That, you know, if you entrust yourselves into the hands of God, you will find that he holds you fast. That he won't drop you. That he won't miss you. Uh, That as you throw yourself into his arms, uh, you'll find that they're arms that are strong. And they're there. And they will hold you fast. How do we know that he's there for us? How do we know that he can hold us? Well, because this is the God who sent his son into the world. And he sent his son into the world uh, to live for us and then to die for us and then to rise again for us. So how do I know that if today I entrust myself to God that he won't drop me, that he'll be there for me? Well, he has demonstrated his own love, his great love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why should I have that confidence? Why should I have that faith? Why should I put myself into the hands of God? It's because you know that his love is steadfast, his love is great, his love is unshakable, because you can see it in the person of Jesus Christ, in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the promises of Jesus Christ. And so let me finish now uh, by saying, would you not give yourself for the first time, for the hundredth time, but would you not give yourself today uh, to God? That's what Jonah's doing. He's giving himself to God, and he's doing it because he's awakened, and he knows that he's been crazy, uh, running away from God, and he's been stirred, and he's had to face his own sinfulness. He's acknowledged the fact that he's got nowhere to go, and he cannot solve this himself. Well, that's with a journey God wants to take us on, so that he may save us so that he may embrace us so that we are empty of ourselves so we can be filled with his grace so would you give yourself to god would you give yourself to the holy spirit who is in striving with you to the son of god who shed his blood to wash away your sins and who's gone now to prepare a place for you and to a father who is ready to be a father to you and has loved you in a way nobody else ever could or ever will.